0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Ivy Zellman, and I have been following her research and writing for the better part of a decade plus. Uh, She has had a series of phenomenal calls within various aspects of of the real estate industry, be it the home builders, the mortgage originators, uh, the credit underwriters. Uh, she is definitely a, a contrarian. She is somebody who is extremely astute as to the economic cycle and how it affects housing. If you were, are at all interested in real estate, credit, uh, homes, both single-family and multifamily and all of the latest uh, innovations in either technology or uh, financial innovations and financing, of, of especially from the private equity side. Uh, we, we just spend some time talking about uh, I buying the instantaneous buyers that have appeared that facilitate uh, transactions of sellers. I think you're going to find this conversation filled with wonky goodness. So, with no further delay, my conversation with real estate and equity analyst expert, Ivy Selman. I'm Barry Ritholtz, you're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ivy Zellman. She is the CEO and founder of Zellman & Associates, a boutique research firm focusing exclusively on the housing industry. She is an institutional investor Hall of Fame equity analyst. Uh, The All-American Research Team rankings placed Ivy and her team with 11 first place rankings between 1999 and 2013. Ivy Zellman, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank
2: you for having me, Barry.
1: So you cover one of my very favorite areas because it's so fascinating, especially uh, in the United States. Housing, the pursuit, construction, financing of it. Let's Talk about the early days of your career and how you became uh, a housing analyst. You, you began on Wall Street 1990, is that about right? That's right. Uh, what path led you there?
2: Well, actually, I didn't start out interested in housing, admittedly. Um, I was um, really focused as an undergrad on accounting, and I was uh-huh. working um, at Arthur Young, now Ernst & Young, going to night school. So I went to undergrad for six years. And during the time that I was studying at uh, George Mason University and working at Ernst & Young as an accounting major, I was asking a lot of these accountants that I worked with, do you like what you do? And they hated it. (laughs) They almost universally, everyone I talked with said, you don't want to be an accountant. So I was like, well, what should I do? And they basically all said, go get a job on Wall Street. And I'm like, what does that mean? Because at George Mason, Wall Street firms didn't recruit students there, so I had to network and knock on doors, and eventually it led me to Wall Street, where I got a job at Solomon Brothers in investment banking, and I was there for a two-year stint as an investment banking analyst prior to be coming in, uh, going into equity research and so, housing.
1: So all told, you were there from 1990 to 1997. Is right. Is that about right? Yep. Kind of overlapping with the Michael Lewis Liars Poker era,
2: right? One That's of my a, favorite books. By that, the way. So
1: that that is a very much a, a male dominated period in Wall Street. Not that Wall Street has has really done enough to to even the gender levels, but back in the nineties, that had to be kind of a wild place to work.
2: It was a lot of fun. I think starting out first being in a class because I was in a training program. I think I was one of three women of 70 kids. And we were all there for two years. I was intimidated because most of them were from the Ivy League. And so I initially, not even being just a woman, but just, you know, having from a state university. Um, But, you know, once you're, once you're there, you know, you put your head down, you work hard. And it was really just about proving myself. And uh, as working hard as I can. So I think that it, it today I look back on that time and I had a lot of fun, but it was about just you know execution and working as hard as you can to prove
1: yourself. So how did you transition from investment banking analyst to housing analyst?
2: After two years, you're out of a job, which you know that's the case when you the job
1: it's a it's a two-year lifespan
2: It's a two-year lifespan and most of the 70 odd plus or minus will go on to get their MBA and then return you know back to Wall Street. and because I had student loans already through undergrad and unfortunately didn't want to take on um, the responsibility or go back to school after six years, I just was looking for a job to pay my rent. And internally, we had something called the uh, you know the Treasury scandal going on uh-huh. at that time, and uh, unfortunately, John Goodfriend and the firm was in turmoil. So a lot Is of this people. This the period
1: where Warren Buffett came in and righted right. the ship. Okay, pretty much.
2: And prior to Warren Buffett righting the ship, the view was there, you know the lights were going to go out at Solomon, and oh, really? a lot of people were leaving, and there was an opportunity that opened up in, in equity research, in the housing space, and the um, actually in corporate finance. I worked in transportation group and gentleman by the name of Julius Maldudis, which is a famous uh, airline analyst he's like you should go work in equity research you know and and go help them. So I got a job with his recommendation as an associate in the, um, at that time, it was uh, Bruce Harding, who covered SNLs and Fannie and Freddie. And he was picking up home building and housing as a favor, because Bob Bishop quit, said, I'm out of here, as many other people were quitting. Mm -hmm. So I came an associate, and I was just happy to have a job. People were like, you don't want to be an equity research analyst. They're just like monkeys. They just the companies tell them what to write, and and I just wanted to get a job and stay at the firm, and and there there there
1: you have it. To be fair, some of them are not monkeys. Some of them are insightful <laughs> researchers who put forth intelligent, um, actionable, wealth generating research. Is well, that- absolutely agree with that, and
2: I certainly don't agree with the monkey comment. But I, it was the beginning of now my. Nearly thirty-year
1: career as an equity analyst. So not not as a monkey, but not as a monkey, but actually generating research. So so you're you're kind of thrown into housing. How did you suddenly discover such a proficiency for it? How, what made you so astute as a, as someone without a background in housing going into that space?
2: You know, I think what I really loved about it initially was the fact the challenge was to really find ways to differentiate the work that I was doing. And when you have a fragmented industry, and housing is something that, you know, I could relate to. I lived in a home. I liked the housing market. It was really about finding companies that were privately held Mm -hmm. that are in the business of housing, whether they were a home builder or a realtor like your mom or a building product manufacturer, and talking to them about the business and learning from them, and then using that analysis to then try to correlate or predict what public companies
1: would do. Were were other people delving into private companies at that time as a way to give them a little more color into what the reality of the public corporate situation was?
2: Not that much, to be honest with you. In fact, um, not to give too much credit to any one person, but it was really, I was assigned a buddy. Uh, Uh Solomon Brothers decided that a salesperson and analyst would become buddies, and they would work closely together for the younger analyst to learn from the senior salesperson. And this senior salesperson really said, you know, you need to go dig in the channel, you need to find private companies, and that was really the, the direction I went. Now, it just so happened I happened to have married my buddy, um, but that's a longer story. But my husband, David, really was the one who directed me to go find private companies, and that will really help differentiate you.
1: Quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about Wall Street and housing. I think for the most part, Wall Street has not done a, a distinguished job covering Housing in general, covering uh, the retail and department store sector, um, certainly uh, the the credit companies that are associated with residential housing. What's your view? Is Wall Street, am I overstating this? Or does Wall Street not do a great job getting housing right?
2: Well, you know, looking at really our our firm, which um, we think we do get it right you know, what we've built has enabled us to really um, differentiate our overall views because we're dependent not upon what economists are predicting or um, other – Outside parties, perspectives, meaning publicly traded management teams telling them what they should do. We're really going outside through our own network, which, again, we channel check, develop relationships. We have nearly a 1,000 companies that are throughout what I call the housing ecosystem. Whether they're a builder, they're a broker, they're a mortgage originator, they're a manufacturing company that makes building products, or they're in the single-family rental business as an as owner-operator apartment, we're, we're taking all of these silos and we're aggregating data that is proprietary data within each silo, and we're then triangulating it amongst this ecosystem to have a a firm view of what's going on in the market. And I don't think it's unique to Zellman. No one else has anything like what we do. And it's been built over the course of the decades that I've been in the business. So I can't say what other firms do, but I think we get it right.
1: Well, it sounds like Wall Street is generally a little too close with corporate management, and they're looking for guidance and not doing a sort of deep, outside-the-box research um, dive into various aspects of housing? Or, or again, am I overstating that?
2: Well, again, I can't speak on behalf of what other firms are doing, but I know what we don't do. <laughs> and I can tell you that back in the, I guess, go-go days of the housing market in, you know, 03, 04, 05, I wasn't a very popular analyst um, working at Credit Suisse when I was negative. And certainly the companies um, didn't see eye to eye with my views. And It's like being the sober person at the party. Um, So um, I was definitely a Lone Ranger
1: at times. So let's talk about that period. Uh, Financial engineering was endemic. Securitization uh, was a giant uh, revenue source. And we ended up seeing that eventually spiral out of control into the great financial crisis. So what is it about that era that led so many people astray, especially the supposed smart guys doing the quantitative um, research?
2: Well, I don't know that you could pin it on one thing other than greed. um, Certainly the um, inability to really take sort of the entire mosaic and see the risk that was so, in our opinion, obvious. A lot of people started, I call it, drinking their own Kool-Aid and believing that there was a secular shift in home ownership rates and that the government was certainly supportive of continued you know um, enabling people to have the american dream but there was a optimism that was not supported by the you know ingredients that go into you know creating that opportunity for people so it it just was a again as if people just were convinced that it was different this time and mm-hmm. that you know, housing words. housing was you know gonna go up forever.
1: So I want to point out this is not a case of hindsight bias where of course the risks were obvious, says everybody today. In real time, I recall reading some of your research 06, uh, when did you leave 7? Um, May of 07. So in real time, before the bust, you were effectively saying, "There's a problem with credit. There's a problem with housing. This is unsustainable." What What was the research that you were putting out at that time saying? How How blunt were you? Pretty blunt. Um, I remember
2: a report that we entitled "Investors Gone Wild" in July of 2005. Mm-hmm. I think we had like a thousand people on our conference call across all of it beyond equities within you know fixed income and derivatives everywhere. Um, the securitization guys were there, but generally speaking, the amount of investors. When you go to, uh, let's say, Las Vegas, and you're driving from the airport, and your taxi driver is telling you he's buying houses, and then, you know, you go to a, the nail salon, and the woman in the nail salon is doing your nails, is buying houses, and you realize we got maybe we have a problem. I think that the investors uh, and the magnitude that were buying both new and existing homes with no money down, and understanding the mortgage piece was probably one of the biggest. Um, parts of our uh, conviction on on why we had a real problem here, and and mentioning, again, affordability was clearly way out of reach from any historical perspective. Um, The other aspect of it, besides investors gone wild, was the amount that the builders were willing to pay for land, and having the ability to talk to private companies and who would be competing with the builder for that land, and the private builders would tell us, oh my god, you cannot believe what these guys are paying for the land. That was another part of our analysis that really led us to understand the risks that these um, companies were, were really willing to absorb at the expense of shareholders.
1: You put your finger on a couple of things I want to bring up, one of which is historically most builders are pretty cognizant of the real estate cycle and the business cycle, and they get aggressive when things are cheap and when things get expensive, they pull back. But for some reason, it seemed that a lot of people sort of stopped doing that in 05, 06, 07. What was it about that period that made them forget, oh, no, we don't want to pay up for lands. It'll come back down when the cycle turns.
2: Well, you know, I think there was a view that the demographics had shifted and that um, there was support for, you know, a secular growth in housing that we hadn't hadn't seen in prior cycles. That was the that was what the companies pitched to the investment community. And they -hmm. they really believed in many of them. Um, They also had Wall Street pushing hard to drive top line. So. What had been matching short term assets with short term debt or long term debt with long term um, assets, you know, what you started seeing is builders willingly taking on more leverage, buying larger parcels because it would feed the machine, enabling them to continue to show strong growth. Mm-hmm. And so the market was really demanding growth and they were willing to put the capital to work. You know, it's one of the only businesses that, you know, once you build the factory and then sell it, you have to rebuild your factory. And unfortunately, this is one of a factory that, you know, you have to invest 50 cents to 70 cents to make a dollar revenue. It's capital-intensive business, and you start buying land that won't be, let's say, put into the manufacturing capacity utilization machine for a few years, you can really put some significant risk on the balance sheet. Hmm.
1: Quite Quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the timing of the launch of Zellman & Associates. You you do this, was it later in 07, is that right? We
2: left Credit Suisse in May and started Zellman October 3rd, 2007.
1: Okay, so October 5th, 2007, the October equity markets. October 3rd, oh sorry, go No, ahead. October 5th, mm-hmm. 2007 is when the equity markets peaked mm-hmm. and would not see that level again until 2013. So your timing was kind of interesting and coincidental. Uh, You obviously saw some variation of what was coming. Why launch into that sort of mayhem? Or or was the expectation, hey, nobody's job is safe, we might as well do it ourselves? Or what were you thinking?
2: Well, my team at at Credit Suisse, Dennis McGill, who was my... um, uh, partner associate, and he's the co-founder of Zellman Associates, along with Alan Ratner, who was also working with us on the team at Credit Suisse. We were working um, as equity analysts, uh, really focused on housing, but we were servicing the entire firm because we were such in the eye of the storm. And we had such a controversial call, and I had such an unbelievable network that we created through these private industry contacts that we wanted – we weren't feeling that we were – First of all, we were, um, unfortunately, a lot of people internally within the sales force and the traders and and the the securitization, the ABS guys, they didn't agree with our call. Mm -hmm. So we were a little bit – Hey, somebody has to be on the wrong side of the trade, right? (laughs) Well, we were not very popular. And you know, I was even told by the head of product management from Credit Suisse's um, perspective that your job could be at risk if you don't make, you know, you had your, I think in 2006, this is what happened, 2006, the stocks were down about 40% Mm -hmm. and there was a slowing and we were right. And then Bob Toll and Toll Brothers said, hey, things are picking up. This is back in September of '06, and they called it the Zellman Bottom, <laughs> and and that you need to get with it, and you need to be more bullish. You've had your little good time now. Now you need to turn around and be bullish. And I remember publishing Dennis and I. We had fun writing this report. Um, in December of 2006, we wrote 12 reasons or the 10 reasons to sell home building stocks.
1: Wait, let me. Let's just make sure I understand the timing here. So. You're negative on, on home builders and housing stocks. They fall 40% over the next 24 months. Is that fair? I think it,
2: that it was July of 05 was when they, um, we started really seeing inventory starting to lift. So, so 12 so months. Let's say 12 months.
1: So this is a fierce bear market, and it's only the beginning, down 40%. Um, and and somebody, not your direct boss, but somebody in the firm, says, "All right, you've had your little fun, you've had your little pullback. You better flip bullish." And your contrarian response is bullish. Watch this. Right. Uh, no hesitation. Not wondering about. Hey, these guys can get me fired. There was no thought about that. Or was there?
2: Um. Well this this was a managing director running all of the. A morning call, product manager, and I was pretty pissed off, and <laughs> actually um, went to my director of research and complained. and And actually, the research director was very supportive of me, and so with that, it was they were great to me. Uh-huh. But this particular person, unfortunately, you know, was was someone I was pretty upset with. But subsequent to that, sort of they, the Zellman Bottom, we published something in October of '06 called Wonderland. Uh-huh. And Wonderland was basically saying that the home building industry is going to have to write off equity because they've overpaid for so much land. We actually estimated about a 20% re-
1: um, equity write off. How much was that in actual dollars? Uh, I don't but we're talking billions of, and billions yeah, of dollars.
2: And in actuality, it turned out to be 50 to 60% that they wrote off. Wow. So we were way off, but we were so contrarian right. at this time. So that Nobody was. Nobody else
1: was saying 20% write off. No no, 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 no write offs. It triple that.
2: Yeah, no write offs or anything. So that was October 06. That was another sort of flagship report. But in December, the stocks kept going up, so they were right. rallying in our face, we're getting a lot of backlash, Salesforce was against us, people internally were like, what's the story? And in December, we came out with the, the 10 reasons to sell homebuilding stocks. And um, Give us a few
1: reasons out of the 10. It,
2: the, the 10 was they were you know basically the the mortgage market was not sustainable the fueling of, of the growth was coming from you know these ridiculous exotic mortgage products you had land prices were going to crash we had consumers that were not buying because the investors were buying um, i'd have to go back and look at all the specifics but
1: any it, any big clients say i don't care about that this is contrarian i'm going to do this and put giant bets uh, to work?
2: Sure. Um, John Paulson uh, was one of um, our clients that we talked to regularly. Steve Eisman uh, was one of my buddies. I probably spoke with him daily along with his team, Danny Moses and Vinny Daniels. Those guys were, every day we were on the phone with them. There were some people that were really convinced, as we were, that this bearish call at some point was going to work.
1: So the Selma Gomez character in the Big Short that that was supposed to be you is that right?
2: <laughs> I got one quote in there, but not
1: that one. You did. What mm-hmm. was the quote in the Big Short?
2: Oh, I, I don't remember the quote, but Michael Lewis did stick me in there.
1: You, you mentioned the you mentioned the um, cab driver in in Vegas on the way back from the airport. Uh, my favorite scene with Steve Carell is he's I don't remember if it was a stripper or a waitress, but it was in a strip club and he's asking her they're talking about real estate and he's saying how do you afford the mortgage on that house and she goes that house i own i have four houses <laughs> and that's the moment where okay i think i have to right. i don't remember what character he was who he was playing in real life. He was playing Steve Eisman. He was Steve Eisman, mm-hmm. okay, so yep. that character, Absolutely. that's the moment. Yep. Um, it's a little more dramatic in a strip club than speaking to a Wall Street analyst about uh Well, you know, I housing. actually,
2: my husband and I, we owned um, a home in Florida, and uh-huh. we'd go out to the beach, and it's in a community, and the guy that was putting the umbrellas in the sand, Chris, he told my husband that he owned about 10, 15 lots, and I was like, and this is probably 2004, 2005, and he was asking my husband, do you want to go look at some lots with me because you can buy them with no money down? And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, David, do you hear this? This is crazy. So, you know, everywhere, you know, but but Steve was on it. He had the call, he really did.
1: So a friend of mine called uh, called that uh, era, um, the so-called home owners were really renters with an option to default, which <laughs> I which I thought was kind of amusing. Yeah, interesting. Let's talk a little bit about where we are in the housing market today. I've seen a couple of things that remind me a little bit of the early 2000s. Um, HGTV is going strong and flip this house is back. And although these days it seems to be more about renovating than it is about buying and selling them, um, but the housing market seems to have mostly recovered in about half the country. I'm ballparking that where where do you see the housing market today and does it remind you at all of the bad old days
2: i think the housing market right now is pretty healthy uh 2018 was a tough year the uh, market decelerated pretty much most of the year more month to month worse than normal seasonality but by the time we got to the end of the year it ended with a big thud And a lot of people thought housing was going to lead us into a recession again, uh, mainly due to the stock market turmoil, getting the the political turmoil, global uncertainties, sort of perfect storm. So housing came to kind of a screeching halt. And yet the fundamentals actually were pretty favorable. We have strong job growth, uh, consumer confidence is high, and incomes are accelerating. And if you look at the housing market from supply and demand, we actually have a pretty significant deficit of a lack of supply, which we estimate to be about 25%. So when you just look at what we need in order to provide shelter for the incremental households growing, and those getting knocked down and demolished, that's a pretty strong positive part of the thesis. Now, you mentioned half the market for the United States recovered. That's in terms of home prices. Mm -hmm. So about half the country is actually below its prior peak. Um, As you think about Pricing—the pricing in the in the housing market is a little bit now um, more challenging. So builders are, in fact, and brokers and real estate agents are seeing a momentum in spring um, pick back up from the thud. Now was the stock market close to record highs again? The political turmoil has settled down, but spring selling season actually is definitely pretty good. Now the entry level is much stronger than the move up and luxury. And depending on a market where job growth might be stronger versus another city where it's not as strong, so all real estate, it doesn't necessarily move in tandem. Right. But right now, I'd say it's healthy and affordability is still reasonable. I don't see a lot of concerns at this point, things that we're watching. I'm happy to elaborate, but generally, I'd say we feel pretty good about the market today.
1: So, so we have constrained supply, relatively low rates, even after the past year of increases, rates are still historically, um, what, what is a mortgage today? 4%, Four percent? Four and a half percent? Four and a quarter. I, I mean, that's pretty reasonable, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. So so given the limited supply and low rates, what does that mean for home prices over the next couple of years?
2: Well, home prices have been up, the first year they increased was 2012. And since 2012, we've been running at about a five to six percent growth uh, Kager, and what we're seeing right now is some moderation in home price appreciation. You know, the inventory is available for sale in the United States. If you look at it over a long period of time, and we look at it, inventory, those homes listed for sale as a percent of households, which we think it provides a trend line, unlike right. most realtors, and your mom probably talked about month supply, right. um, what we tell you is that inventories in the U.S. are actually at nearly at 30-year lows. So inventories nationally are very, very low. And what that means is that there's more demand than supply, so prices continue to increase. But we're starting to see some moderation in how much pricing power there really is, more of that being skewed to more challenging environment at the higher end. Some cities, for example, in the luxury price point, are actually seeing pretty significant deflation, like New York City, Miami, and others are just challenged. And buyers, or sorry, sellers, need to capitulate, especially on older stock that's boxy or, you know, dated that uh, needs to be rehabbed and hasn't been. So there's sellers uh, I need to be more more. They need to be more realistic.
1: What, what about the ultra high end, uh, 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 my friends? We we both know Jonathan Miller he calls that aspirational pricing when people slap a 40 or a 50 or a 100 million dollar price tag on something that's really worth a fraction of it. Um, What's happening with the ultra high end uh, end of the market? Is, Is that finding a little reality or do we still see crazy prices?
2: Um, I think the markets in general are still seeing crazy prices. There has been some capitulation where sellers in Greenwich, for example, are starting to recognize it's been three years, the home's not moving, let me lower the price a bit. So we do see some you know, um, capitulation, but not nearly as much as we need to. In fact, yesterday I was with a client visiting in New York and that when, when are New York City prices going to go down more? And I said, well, they've, gone, they've come down quite a bit from their aspirational peak, like Jonathan likes to say, from 2014. He says, developers aren't willing to lower their prices. They're giving me 10 years of no maintenance and no taxes, but they won't lower the price. I said, stay tuned, they will.
1: You think that'll eventually, they'll be forced to?
2: I think they have to. I think right. otherwise there might be distress for some of these developers. I mean, the sales for the luxury in New York City in the first quarter is like, non-existent
1: really it's very very weak so so what about the fat part of the distribution of housing the let's call it half a million to a million dollar homes more than start and, and by the way that's my New York bias price or San Francisco or Chicago is more reasonable um, lots of places in the rest of the country are more reasonable but more than a starter home less than the really high-end houses how, how is that area doing?
2: It's really more market dependent.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I could tell you in Dallas, for example, over four hundred thousand to six hundred thousand, it's very competitive, mm-hmm. and you're probably seeing um, a little pressure there. Builders being forced to use more concessions. Whereas if you go into, let's say, a market like um, Phoenix, the four to six is very healthy, and you might even see some pricing power. So generally that segment of the market is been more, um, I think, mature in terms of the cycle. And when you think back to 2000, really 2011 was the bottom. So as we saw growth, really the the fat of the market really has had now seven, eight years recovery. Mm -hmm. Whereas the entry level, believe it or not, the builders did not want to build that true affordable product where we call it, you know, building out in the exurbs, the right. pioneers where you'd have to drive to qualify. Part of which was because the mentality was that consumers only want to walk to work and or you can't get a mortgage. Now the mortgage market was so tight, builders were concerned about building affordable for lower credit quality. So really the entry level, true entry level price point didn't start getting constructed until really in earnest until 2016. In fact, um, we would argue that today the entry-level portion of new home sales is still materially below where it, 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 what would be perceived normal. So it's a bit of a tale of two markets where you have one, one meat of the market, mm-hmm. still has some legs, but it's later stage – and it's still reasonable, healthy in terms of inventories. It's still, the six months—if that's a balanced market—the move up is still below six months. But you are seeing the low end, the entry level, where there's real robust demand, but just not enough product.
1: Huh. Quite, quite interesting. What you mentioned how regional um, real estate is. What areas stand out, either for good or bad reasons, as interesting or unusual around the country?
2: Um, I was just in Nashville last week and I was just... Unbelievable, booming market uh, with, you know, really a pro-business stance that, you know, companies continue to move there and the migration's moving there. But just top of mind, because having just been there, we, we were there, I was speaking as a guest for a real estate conference, and I was sort of blown away by the growth. Um, what we're seeing a lot, though, we study the markets. and We understand where uh, migration patterns, importantly, which states are winning and which are losing. And Florida is just a winner both with- Across the board millennials and with the boomers right and you're seeing a tremendous amount of migration into florida and despite miami beach's softness right now at the higher price point i think florida is going to continue to be a winner um you continue to see winners out west and southwest strength in vegas arizona and colorado california on the other hand is where we see some concern and we've lost foreign national buyers there the, for, uh, the foreign national Chinese buyers are pretty much all but gone mm-hmm. people that are there Chinese buyers are buying but the foreign nationals have gone the bay area despite silicon valley and you know the the benefits there seems to be just not reaccelerating like the rest of california off of what was the weaker period of 18 um and some of that is it related to tax reform, SALT? Is it concern just in terms of the um, continued pressure on literally, consumers? Literally my <laughs> next question.
1: So so we keep reading about the egress from New York to Florida and from California to Arizona. And I know some of that is just normal retirement. Hey, at a certain age, um, if you live in, in Westchester or Long Island, you may not want to go to Florida, but it's the law. You you have to move down there. <laughs> um, but, you know, the David Tepper story, leaving New Jersey because it saved him uh, a bajillion dollars in, in taxes. How significant are those most recent tax changes and the loss of the state and local tax deduction to the real estate market?
2: Well, first you have to look at it in totality, and appreciate that about eighty-four percent of tax filers actually had a reduction in the taxes that they pay.
1: Right. So really, but the, that's on a gross number. Is it a is it a big deduction? Is it a little deduction? You mean after all the state all and, local? and local? If
2: you took everything into consideration, gotcha. The benefit is actually the majority actually had a benefit. Now, right. where the negative impact had, is is at the higher price or the higher income brackets Mm -hmm. so where the risk would be is for that 80 to 85th percentile income percentile right so where if you're in the highest income bracket but really the question will be if you assumingly are in let's say rye new york or scarsdale or you're living out in long island and your kids are in high school or your kids are in elementary school are you really picking up where you work and leaving the state because of taxes no You know, could you start to see some pricing pressure? Because maybe my buddy and his wife that are empty nesters and they can, you know, everybody's mobile today with today's technology can work from their home. They're going to pick up and leave. So you're going to see more inventory start to build for that marginal person that can leave that will put some more pressure on prices. So I think the lever is price. Uh And I don't think that it will create a collapse, but I think the coastal sort of tri-state area, California markets are going to see some more incremental inventory lead to moderation in pricing.
1: Hmm. Quite quite interesting. Can you stick around a bit? I have a ton more questions for you. We have been speaking with Ivy Zellman, CEO and co-founder of Zellman Associates. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape running and continue discussing all things real estate. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, Apple, uh, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions Write to us at M-I-B podcast at Bloomberg.net. You could check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Ivy, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, I am a real estate junkie, not only because it was dinner table conversation every night back in the days when mortgage rates were 15%, um, but it's just fascinating. Everybody has to live somewhere. Why not live someplace fun, interesting, neat, in a house that is... um, Sort of representative of your style and tastes and values and interests, and it's really uh, it's really a fascinating space. You have to be thrilled that you found your way into real estate, even though that was never your intention when you began.
2: I am. I'm thrilled.
1: <laughs> I love it. So, um, so let's let's go through a few of the questions we missed during the broadcast section before we get to our favorite questions in a few minutes. Um, I have to ask about the launch of Zellman & Associates. So October seven, we were talking about the date. You said you launched October 3rd. I believe October 5th was the all-time high back then, uh, at least for the Dow. What was it like launching right into the teeth of the rollover and slide down for the next 18 months?
2: Well, my partner and I, Dennis McGill, um, we uh, recruited uh, our partners in uh, crime at Credit Suisse, Alan Ratner mm-hmm. and Melinda Greenwich, who was my secretary at the time kind of pulled her over from Credit Suisse. And my husband was also in the beginning. So it was really the five of us. And um, it was 24-7. We were working our butts off in order to be prepared for our big date that we set. But I think it was so much fun as well because we, at this point, had already had tastes of victory, Mm -hmm. where we knew that what we had predicted was actually not only coming to fruition, but way worse than we had ever considered or, or predicted. And so... While we were in the the teeth of the storm with not you know clear certainty which direction and how much more severe the storm could be, we had um, a, just a fantastic time c- circling investors and interest we were we were in the sweet spot, so it was so much fun. I mean we had um Crazy days and and nights, and it was con- all consuming. I, I could tell you that it was uh, difficult with three little babies running um, right. around, but it was like where you'd wake up at four in the morning and you just couldn't wait to get in
1: front of your computer. So it was just thrilling, really thrilling. So I remember, um, I'm try- I want to do the get the years right. I could be doing the my memory could be faulty. In in I think it was oh5 the home builders rolled over, and. I don't remember if that was 40% that year, but it was clear they were under stress while the rest of the market was going higher. And then the next year, um, the banks and brokers, uh, 06, started to come under pressure. And again, the market kept going up. And then 07, I don't remember what seg- segment rolled over. It was New Century. Is is that what it was? March of 07, So New a mortgage century. underwriter. Right. So so was the mortgage underwriters in 07, and the market kept going up. So- when you're launching the firm, these are three calls that you had previously talked about as a contrarian, as an outlier, who turned out to be correct. When you launched the firm, I have to assume a lot of clients came along with you. Fortunately,
2: they did. So it, it was um, a very strong launch, and um, you know we have had the ability to continue to recruit new clients and really provide. What we think is unique proprietary research that no one else um, in, in, um, no one else on Wall Street does anything like we do. So we really provide uh, significant advantages to our institutional investors and private equity firms that use Zellman.
1: So private equity are, are also clients.
2: Yeah, mostly it's hedge funds and mutual funds, but we also have some private equity clients as well.
1: So so let's talk a little bit about that network. How, how do you go about, because the only thing I can even remotely compare it to, in the early days, Ed Hyman started a um, on an economic side, building out a network of of private companies that would report their data to him. and basically, part of the reason he was so successful in the uh, economic space as a non-economist is his data was better than what BLS was generating. right. Sounds like you you created something, Similar within the the real estate space, builders, brokers, real estate um, developers. Who who else was in that network? And how do you go about reaching out to these folks? So we we do follow Ed's model in going after
2: sort of understanding what is happening in in various um, silos within the economy. But ours is dedicated just to housing and housing related. But so we've got um, survey of, of Private home builders, Mm -hmm. a survey of land developers, um, a quarterly survey um, for banks to discuss their lending to acquisition and development financing for builders. Um, We have a apartment survey, a building product manufacturing distribution survey. We just published that today. Single family rental and a home center survey, we just published published that one as well today. I'm sure I'm gonna forget one. Um, The broker survey, Mm -hmm. which uh, we survey about 10% of existing home sales. So if you look at each silo, the home building survey is the most mature and um, most significant probably in sample size. Um, Oh, I forgot the mortgage originator survey, Mm -hmm. um, which is also very significant in size. But all of them, we have not not to discount what Ed's survey does, but Ed has very few questions. Most of the surveys we have will be anywhere from 20 to 30 questions.
1: So how do you reach out to somebody and say, hey listen, I want you to participate in a quarterly thing. Don't worry, it's only eight pages of, of questions. It'll take you less than a week to fill it out. How, how do you make that pitch? Well, first you go back 25, 30 years, and,
2: mm-hmm. and you have um, a survey that's done over the phone, and you, and you build and cement relationships, and over time with technology, you create a platform where you they can do it online, it's all automated, but the exchange with these C-suite executives that tallied nearly a 1,000 throughout the ecosystem well, is we will give you the research. For free. For free, if you fill out the survey.
1: And everybody who participates wants to know what's happening in right. the adjacent silos. So that works well, out well. Really they, well,
2: they want to know what's going on within their peers, within their own silo. Right. But they want someone that can triangulate all of it. And in fact, our institutional investors are so data-driven mm-hmm. that sometimes the um, C-suite executives, our information is almost too much for them, which is one of the reasons we developed uh, a a uh, a newsletter called the Z Report, which is a much higher level, um, bi-monthly report that just gives you really that thirty thousand foot perspective, seven to eight articles on all the pieces of the mosaic. Because some of them were like Ivy, it's just too much, <laughs> so they prefer that.
1: So when you say bi-monthly, it's every other month, not.
2: I'm saying bi-weekly. Bi-weekly, <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. So twice a month, Correct. effectively. Correct. Um, I never know which is which. That's why. I, I no, I, I th-
2: said bi-monthly, but it's twice twice a month.
1: So and, and that. How, how big of a document is that is that something that can be um, read can quickly read, or
2: I'd say you can read it in 1015 minutes and it has some charts but you know whether the articles are on you know rising health care costs as an impediment to home ownership or affordability you know heat, uh, reaching a, a new high or, or low whatever the topic um, might be the demographics Millennials you know accelerate um, family formation we, we take each of the pieces of our puzzle and we take articles that we think are timely and it allows people, again, to walk away from a 10 to 15 minute read with hopefully a nice hot cup of tea or coffee with, wow, I really get what's going on now in the Mm -hmm. housing market overall.
1: That's very, very interesting. So if you want to express an idea in a trade, how do you go about doing it? Is it long or short? The home builders, the credit side, how, how does... Do some of these hedge funds, we know what happened in 08 09, but how do hedge funds today take your research and apply it to capital?
2: Well, because we are an equity research firm, so our recommendations are to buy, hold, or sell equities. Mm-hmm. Whether they're going to do something that's outside of the equities, we don't recommend. So our we're strictly going to recommend whether they short or go long stocks, so that's all really the firm So, what sort, of,
1: what sort of stocks do you cover? Obviously, the home builders are going to be one group. Um, the mortgage originators are another. Do you go further afield to REITs or anything like that? So, we have home
2: builders, building product manufacturers and distributors. We have real estate brokers. We follow Redfin, Zillow, Realogy, Remax. We follow mortgage insurers, mortgage title companies, and mortgage tech. Uh huh. We follow the home centers. We follow single-family rental REITs and apartment REITs. And I think. That's do you do everybody. office
1: space or storage no. or or uh, retail?
2: No, we only do residential. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the you know, I guess, way we think of our niche that it has to be within residential.
1: So so let me take you a little off of that niche a bit. There's a giant article uh, in the Wall Street Journal about. Uh, the big malls, how they continue to have some of their anchor stores going away, and then once that goes away, everybody else starts to fade and it becomes problematic. And there was some place—I'm going to get this wrong—I don't remember if it was Minneapolis or somewhere—where the mall essentially gets sold to a developer who raises it, and now is putting in apartments, homes. It's—it's it's a whole multi-use. So, so is there something worth tracking? on the retail apocalypse side relative to housing? Or is that just so distant and so far removed it's not worth paying close attention to?
2: Well, I think it it makes sense to assume it's getting repurposed. Uh And as we think about shelter, really you have to think about it with, with the complete eyes uh, with the complete view of rental as well as for sale. And so if it gets repurposed for for sale or for rent in single family where we have a deficit, then we'll be able to track that through the land development survey that we're doing. And tracking that will enable us to see where the growth is going to be and whether or not the growth is justified. But today, if you look at shelter, we believe the multifamily market is actually above normal
1: and meaning there's plenty of supply of that. It's
2: above where it should be. In mm-hmm. fact, there's um if you look at multifamily five plus units, so multifamily high-rise or generally right. where the problem is 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 predominantly urban core. Multifamily is at multi-decade highs wow. with what with the amount of inventory in backlog. Whereas suburban is not as let's say problematic, but there's a real core urban is where the inventories for we believe multifamily market is actually significantly above normal.
1: So if we had a guess coming out of the crisis, people were either reluctant to buy or unable to qualify for a mortgage, so there was a ton of renters and it seemed the builders went a little hog wild over there. Is it safe to assume that the pendulum is going to start swinging in the other direction or do does this really have to do they really have to run out the rope and and see some Problems before they adjust what they're building.
2: So, if I understand your question correctly, you're you're asking: Will the builders start to build affordable product well, again?
1: Um, when will they shift from multifamily to single family? If there's a a, a plethora of multifamily and a dearth of single family.
2: Well, they're completely different operators, um, different developers, different um, operators from the perspective that they're within their silos. The multifamily operators would never just go do single family. Very unusual. You'll sometimes have, like, Lennar Corporation is a publicly traded company, and they're a sing- they're known for their single-family building, but they also have a multifamily business. Right. But very few organizations, companies have, in the multifamily space, do single-family as well.
1: So when, when you, really, what I'm wrestling with is, if there's way too much multifamily, multifamily builders, they're not going to say, hey, there's too much supply, let's take a year off. Right. Do they just keep building? Do they move towards luxury? What, what do they do in the face of excess supply?
2: Well, right now, what you'll start to see is that they have uh, pressure on rents mm-hmm. and their underwriting requirements, or what the way they underwrite the land. They won't be hitting their hurdle rates at some point if this supply that we believe is still in backlog actually gets delivered and pressures their returns. So right now, there's a lot of capital chasing this asset class because when you compare it to malls or other REITs, it's actually a tall midget in many respects. Right, even, tallest even midget though in the group. right. Even though it's expensive, it's actually one of those very consistent businesses. It doesn't have the kind of cyclicality that the single family for sale market. So it's still a very good business. But what may happen from the supply being, um, in our opinion, at excess levels, is that they won't get the returns that they underwrote if rents start to come under pressure. We do think they get leased up. But the question is, will that spigot of growth start to slow as those lease rates um, come under pressure? That in itself will start to slow the growth.
1: Hmm. And before I get to my favorite questions, any other things standing out within the residential real estate market that's unusual or interesting, be it regional, or what What are you kind of going, huh, that, that's surprising?
2: Well, there's a few things. Um, I could talk about the iBuyer market. uh,
1: iBuyer being?
2: iBuyer. Today we have companies uh, that are offering consumers to buy their homes for cash within a few days. So instant buyer. And Open Door, which is a private company, is the leader in this business. Where, at a discount to, they have an algorithm that basically will determine the price that they're willing to pay for a home, allowing that person to be able to move to a move-up home. And uh, actually, Lennar was an investor in Open Door and the, the reason they invested in Open Door's concept and these guys are out of Silicon Valley, Eric Wu is the CEO, is because they found that a lot of our buyers can't sell their homes right. to move in our homes. So that was conceptually why they did it. So
1: so what happens? Someone comes along and says, we'll pay you cash theoretically at a discount to- Yeah, you know, say
2: let's five, 7% discount to what is retail. Right. And, and then a, they'll
1: turn around and sell it.
2: They'll put with that money, they'll fix it up and then they'll sell it. Now, mm-hmm. Zillow's in the business now, uh, Zillow Offer, Redfin Now, um, Offerpad, Knocked. It's it's really growing to be a very big business. In fact, Zillow, who we have a sell rating on, is actually changing their entire business model to go after this iBuyer market. So that's a big interesting thing going on, and generally speaking.
1: Professional flippers.
2: Yes, professional flippers. Huh. Another interesting thing that's going on is the bill-to-rent market. So, I mentioned that we have a deficit of housing, but not everyone can afford to buy a home. So, what consumers want today, though, is they want the American dream, they want the backyard, they want their own home, but in many cases, they can't, for whatever reason, either get approved for a mortgage or they don't want to be committed and they don't want it they want to have flexibility so the build to rent market is actually accelerating to help close the gap and if you look at the build for rent market it could be builders that are willing to sell the last few units in a phase to a build or, or a single family rental operator or they in fact are keeping the asset themselves on the balance sheet and renting them out to generate cash flow but i believe that the build for rent market will accelerate to become a bigger portion of today's households. So roughly 12% of the households in this country live in a single-family rental home.
1: Rental home, not an a multifamily unit. No,
2: single-family rental. Wow. And one of the misnomers in the marketplace is that you either live in an apartment or you live in a single-family home. And the, and what, what people don't appreciate is that if you just look at like living alone, do you have any idea how many people that live alone live in a single-family home? Forgetting if they rent it or own it. Just I, a guess. What percent?
1: 5%? 38%. Really? That's a giant number. that's a giant number. Well, I guess if you start thinking about the older demographic, the second person, the survivor, uh, once one of the the husband and wife passes away, that's got to be a pretty hefty number, and then... Uh, divorces and then people who just want to own a house. But I would never have guessed that. Well keep
2: in mind, this is we're not distinguishing between owning versus renting. So just thirty thirty eight percent. So then when you think about lifestyle, if you go, Okay, well then roommates, then I get married, then I have children, by the time our data shows, by the time you're married with two children, eighty two percent live in a single family home. Wow, and that in fact is again not distinguishing renting versus owning. But when you think about millennials, millennials today call them seventy-five million. I've got two millennials; that are young, 14, 16. Hi, Zoe and Zach. I got Zia too. She's the youngest, but she's not a millennial. Um, when you start to see these millennials actually get married or cohabitate and have families, this—they're at the early; thir- they're in their early thirties right now. Mm-hmm. There's seventy-five million of them. We're just at the beginning of this wave of what will be an unbelievable tailwind to, for the demographics for the need for single-family shelter, assuming you believe that people will continue to get married and have children. And we have some fun ways to analyze this. So we do some, um, obviously, studying birth rates. A lot of people see the national birth rate for the country is going down. But when you look at the 25-plus-year-old women, that birth rate has been growing at a very fast rate. We call it the good birth rate because mm-hmm. nationally birth rates are going down because teenage birth rates are down over 50% since 07.
1: Which is a good thing. Which is a
2: good thing, right? So what we really look at, and I think it, it just to reiterate, it's about lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Lifestyle drives the need for shelter or changes in, t- in the type of shelter. So when we look at build for rent, and we see that phenomena is is a growing trend. I think that you'll hear more about it, and there's more Wall Street money contemplating it, and builders that are selling to the single family REITs and doing it themselves, the iBuyer market, and then just technology. Um, you know, the real estate industry is one that is is being disrupted. If you think about, you know, your mother as a real estate broker, it, it's a very, very tough time. They're being attacked from all from all angles. Right.
1: I mean, she's retired, but the days of six percent commissions—that's pretty much gone, right?
2: I think that certainly has yet to be eliminated. But there's a lot going on that can continue to pressure margin, pressure splits. The market is is being disrupted from a lot of different angles.
1: Huh. Quite fascinating. So the firm is called Zellman and Associates. Is this really the Ivy Zellman show or is it something else?
2: Actually, thank you for asking. No, this is not just the Ivy Zellman Show. In fact, I've got probably close to 30 employees. Uh, we have about a dozen analysts. Each analyst is responsible for their silo and are very successful in aggregating data and analyzing the industry that they're responsible for. So it's it's really, I'm a small piece of what really Zellman Associates is, and there's a lot more uh, of a strength behind the, the the person you see sitting here, and whether it's Alan Ratner, our senior home building analyst, Justin Speer, these people work their tails off and uh, really appreciate all the work, and uh, I get a lot of credit, but they're the, they're the power behind the firm.
1: So before I let you go, I have to get to my favorite 10 questions we ask all our okay. guests, okay. sort of a speed round. Are you ready for this? Ready. Tell us the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model. Toyota Corolla 1980. Uh, what's the most important thing we don't know about you?
2: That I live in Cleveland and I have three beautiful children, and they are my life.
1: So, you went over Cleveland pretty quickly. <laughs> how, how do you like how do you like living in Cleveland?
2: Um, well, I admittedly went kicking and screaming, married mm-hmm. a Cleveland boy who I met at Solomon Brothers, David. Right but it's a wonderful place to raise a family. Uh-huh. And I get to be with my husband's family all the time, and it's great for the kids, and if we could just get the sun to come out.
1: Yeah, the weather uh, is not great in Cleveland, yeah. is but it? But
2: the Browns are supposed to be good this year, so. Uh, it, yes, they are supposed to. We'll so tell us,
1: tell us about your early mentors. Who affected the way you, you did uh, analytics and thought about housing?
2: Well, I already credited David, my 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 buddy at Solomon, um, but I have to say when you buddy think of,
1: slash husband, yeah, his
2: husband was later. But um, when you think about your life and the A list of people I had the pleasure of working with, whether we're talking about people on the sell side at Credit Suisse and Solly, as well as all the clients that I've interacted with, you know, I can give you ten people that come to mind off the top of my head. But one that really stands out is Melinda Greenwich,
1: uh-huh.
2: who was um, really my mentor early on in my career. She's my secretary. But she had been at Drexel, and she was with me for over 20 years and is a friend, business, family, life, every day. And she no longer works with me. Now Kim Gray is my mentor. And, and people think about mentor where you call someone up and, you know, you, you have a challenge, you want to talk something through. You know, these women are are there for me through thick and thin, you know, call in the middle of the night. Those, those are the people that I want to highlight, the people that, that mean everything to me.
1: Huh. Quite, quite interesting. Um, what, fill in the blank, investors, analysts, um, managers, uh, helped shape uh, your thinking about the, the housing market?
2: Give me your list again. Investors?
1: Could be anybody. Investors, strategists, analysts, economists. Who, who has influenced the way you approach the real estate market?
2: Well, I, it's so many, I think that builders themselves, a lot of the private builders in the market, that really helped me to understand the business and give me, from an unbiased perspective, and their, you know, the quality of information and and the and and being able to absorb from the perspective of of an open sort of whiteboard, mm-hmm. the builders, the private builders, uh, Bert Silva, who's a good friend and, and and a CEO in the in the home building industry, I just learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, in the investment world, you know, I think about today some of my top clients. Um, certainly, uh, Richard Chilton at Chilton Advisors, uh, learning about to go after the best-in-class managements and understand, you know, just a long-term investing. Um, there's an art to it, and it doesn't necessarily mean you day trade. And that there's you know, ways to differentiate. Um, Bob Bishop at Impala, who was originally Solomon Brothers housing analyst, who's now a client. Um, he taught me a lot about the business, um, Ricky Sandler at Eminence Capital, who's um, someone I grew up with, but he was ahead of the curve from but that versus where I was. Taught me a lot about the business, so I can keep going. No,
1: that, but that's a that's a healthy list. <laughs> so let me shift gears on you. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're out of the office?
2: Well, I love to walk my beautiful Australian Shepherd, uh-huh. go for long walks, um, hike. Uh, I do a lot of puzzles jigsaw puzzles i mm-hmm. like the new wood puzzles that's been my new thing and um, i've been also doing brain games which has been fun and hanging out and watch my kids and watch the kids play sports my daughter's a great soccer player and she runs track and she keeps us every weekend very busy <laughs> oh and my oldest is off to university of miami so hopefully i'll be there and seeing the sun more
1: yeah that's right in the in the winter um tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience
2: Well, I would say that I was convinced I was going to be an investment banker, Mm -hmm. and I was going to Wall Street to be an investment banker, and I found that it wasn't the right fit for me, and I was pretty devastated. And what I learned from that experience was that your first job won't necessarily be your last, and that even though you're convinced you think you know what you um, are going to do with the rest of your life, you actually can evolve into something else and be successful. So for me, that's really the path that led me to where I am today.
1: So, what has you most excited about what's going on in the real estate industry these days?
2: Um, the uncertainty of what's next—from uh, technology, from disruption, from sustainability—you know, it always is changing every day. What's you know, unfortunately, a lot of it's dependent upon the economic backdrop. But there's a lot of interesting new things that are going on in our sectors, so we have to stay on top of them and obviously continue to guide our clients down the right path for where to steer their investments and and sizing and and getting out before the market turns is is going to be the next goal.
1: So everybody's favorite question: Tell us some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, real estate related, or whatever.
2: Well, I've got eclectic, a number, but I enjoyed, and it was life-changing, a book called Thrive by Ariana Huffington.
1: Oh, ah, okay. I remember when that and, came out. And um,
2: that was really impactful. I, life-changing. Life-changing. Wow. From a person who worked 24-7 and learned a little more balance from mm-hmm. things to Arianna. I read uh, and loved Anna Quindolin's, um Plenty of Cake, Plenty of Candles, which really gave me a renewed optimism on aging. Uh-huh. I, much
1: better than The Alternative.
2: Much better than The Alternative. I, I can't um, help but uh, mention Liar's Poker and The Big Short, My mm-hmm. one of my friends and favorite authors, Michael Lewis. Um, All the Light You Cannot See by Anthony Doe, which is um, World War II uh, fiction, but an incredible read if you like that period. Um, And then just lastly, I've read a lot because I'm a mother of teenage children, and um, Leonard Sachs, um, the books that he's written for parents, uh, Girls on the Edge is a must read, and I'm a little bit uh, anti-social media for children, Mm -hmm. and so I would recommend that highly for for, for parents. Mm.
1: What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone interested in uh, finance or real estate who is just beginning their career?
2: I think that everyone should find a mentor. Everyone should appreciate your first job isn't your last and read a lot. I think um, for me, it was networking as well. I never stopped networking. I remember folding towels in a gym at 6 a.m., to pay for school and I would talk to every gym member and ask them if they knew anybody. So network, network, network.
1: Our final question, what do you know about the world of real estate related investing today that you wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first starting out?
2: Well, I wish I understood, I wish I had the benefit of hindsight and appreciating cycles and being um, willing to tolerate more risk that there's opportunities, and and when there is disruption in the market, to take advantage of it. I think I'm way too conservative, and I was way too risk-averse.
1: Makes perfect sense. We have been speaking with Ivy Zellman of Zellman & Associates. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 250 or so such conversations we've had over the previous uh, five or so years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Be sure and give us a uh, review on Apple iTunes. We, we love your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Michael Boyle is our booker. Uh, Michael Batnick is our head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.